You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark sets this scene in the gospel story in Galilee. Large crowds are following Jesus. There's also a contingent of religious leaders that have walked the 80 miles from Jerusalem to Galilee to challenge Jesus. There's actually three groups of people that are in this picture. There is the crowd, there are Jesus's family members, And then there's this cohort of religious leaders. What's transpired up to this point? Jesus has come and preached a message of the kingdom. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. He's healing people, exercising demons. The crowd is growing. Admirers are becoming part of that crowd. The small band of disciples have been called out, and these religious leaders stand in opposition. When a man was paralyzed uh, and the crowd was so intense that no one could get into the house where Jesus was, They broke a hole in the roof and let him down on a stretcher. But instead of saying to the man, you're healed, rise up and walk, Jesus said, son, your your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law responded, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that brings us to this story. Jesus has entered a house. We don't know whose home it is. It may have been Peter's in Capernaum. And Jesus enters this house, but the crowd is so intense now that they really cannot even find time or space to eat. I'd like to make something of this location, this house. Jesus does so much of his work around the kitchen table. He does so much of his work in the intimacy of a home. The apostles picked up on this theme and spoke of the household of faith or the family of God. The Greek word here is oikos, which means, which we get our word ecology or economics from. Paul, when he describes the church at Ephesus, he says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
What's unique about this description of the church is that six of those words, alien, household, built on, building, built together, a dwelling place, all find their root in the word house. I think this underscores the message of the passage as well, as we will see, that there was meant to be an intimacy of the fellowship of Jesus. It was meant to be a community of believers. The description of brothers and sisters in Christ transcending the biological family and really transcending the religious institution. I'm going to divide this passage into three ways. I think that will help in terms of us understanding it. First, a house divided, and then a house defended, and then a house defined. A house divided. There is a distinction that, Paul, uh, that Mark is making in the gospel between the admiring crowd and the disciples. And there is a distinction, isn't there, between those who admire Jesus and those who follow Jesus. The admiring crowd is attracted to the excitement that surrounds Jesus, to a sense of the importance and the significance of what Jesus is doing. But Jesus never seems to be taken in by popularity, by the crowd. You remember at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, People were excited about him, and the disciples were excited about him, but John has this cautionary line that Jesus, he did not put his trust in people because he knew what was in people. Admirers are critics. Admirers are consumers. Admirers are carefree. I think the rich young ruler was an admirer of Jesus, and that's why he could turn around and walk away when it seemed like the cost of discipleship was going to be too great. Jesus didn't entrust himself to the popularity of the crowd. And Mark distinguishes between the admirers of Jesus and the followers of Jesus. But there's a second group that's outside the house. When his family heard about this, what Jesus was doing, exercising demons, healing people, and really presenting himself as someone who the religious leaders were critical of because he forgave sins. And who but God could do that? When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. That's the same language that's going to be used throughout the gospel for arresting Jesus, for incarcerating Jesus for imprisoning John the Baptist. For they said, he's out of his mind. This controlling family group has come, well-intentioned, I'm sure, to somehow rescue Jesus from himself. They come to take charge of Jesus. And they think he's out of his mind. C.S. Lewis... uh, And Wes made a reference to this quote uh, from Mere Christianity a few weeks ago. Lewis writes, In the mouth of any speaker who's not God, these words, like promising forgiveness, 
would imply what I can only regard as silliness or conceit, unrivaled by any other character in history. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Have you noticed that no one today is calling Jesus crazy? It's not politically correct to call Jesus crazy today. There's a kind of deference and a respect. You know who's called crazy? His followers. The academic critics believe that Jesus really didn't say what he said that we've put those words in his mouth, that the early church imposed those kind of words on Jesus. And that makes us crazy for believing that indeed he is God incarnate, the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's we who are crazy to seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness and to believe that his atoning sacrifice on the cross, which we celebrate in the Eucharist, is actually that which redeems us. God himself taking upon himself our sin for the sake of our salvation. It's we who are crazy. Well, the third group, you've got the amazing, the uh, the crowd that's amazed at Jesus. You've got the controlling family members. And thirdly, you've got a condemning, condemning cohort of religious leaders, the official opposition against Jesus. And we read that the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub is a tainted description that of a Syrian god, Baal Sibel, and it was in the Greek translation of the New Testament, it was turned into this pejorative phrase, Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies, which gave Golding the title for his novel about depravity. Jesus is of the devil. That's a worse category than calling him crazy. Luther wrote, how is it that you can actually see the finger of God, the miracle-working Son of God, how you can see the power of God and yet attribute that to the devil? Jesus responds, 
to the charge of being the devil and really responds also to the charge of being crazy. And this brings me to a house defended. It's interesting how cool Jesus became in responding with all of this pressure around him. I think of the prophet Isaiah, come let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. This, this common repose in the midst of all of this tension. And Jesus uh, turns to parables, to an analogy. Actually, there's an analogy and there's a warning. The analogy is, well, a house cannot be divided and still stand. The devil cannot be in this. You cannot say that the devil is attacking his own kingdom. And the image of the house here is significant because Jesus is saying, you don't rob the strong man without binding him first. And having bound him, then you're free. Well, Jesus is the stronger man than the strong man who's entered into the house. You could entitle this message, Jesus is in the house. And he's in the house with power and with wisdom, and he can afford to keep his cool. Jonathan Edwards, our early American pastor theologian, said that uh, it's Satan's interest to lull the conscience to sleep and to keep it quiet. It's not Satan's interest at all to awaken the soul to see the true dreadfulness of sin. And the devil would never attempt to deepen a person's regard for that which is good and for the word of God. Luther wrote this about this passage. Notice how he pictures the devil. He calls him a mighty giant who guards his court and home. That is, the devil not only possesses the world as its own domain, but has garrisoned and fortified it so that no one can take it from him. He rules it also with undisputed sway so that it does whatever he commands. And Jesus enters the house. He defends that house with that analogy, but also a warning. And it's a sober warning that people are always seemingly confused, no matter how many times they heard, hear an explanation of it. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven for all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Now, let me disabuse you of any notion that somehow you now have already blasphemed the Holy Spirit and forever you will suffer the consequences of eternal sin because of that. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying here is if you persist and insist on moving against the truth and revelation of God, if you continue to say that the gospel is not the gospel, that good is bad, and bad is good. If you persist in that, and that refusal in, uh, con continues, then you'll suffer the eternal consequences. It's really not a condemnation, it's a warning. It's a warning not to refuse the voice of God, not to refuse the testimony of his message. 
Well, that's the essence of his concern there. He gives them not only this analogy that the house cannot be divided, but this warning that don't persist in rejection. A house divided, a house defended, and a house defined. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside, and they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. I find that's interesting because the family expected Jesus to get up from what he was doing inside, teaching the circle of disciples, and go outside to greet them. Instead of them coming inside, instead of people making a way for them to come inside, they stand outside, somewhat like an offended delegation, expecting Jesus to come out. And Jesus asks a question, And in that question, he defines the house. Who are my mother and my brothers? And that rhetorical question just sort of hangs out there. I wonder for how many moments. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You know, there's two institutions here that are being attacked by Jesus. The family and religion. And he's holding both of these in in limbo in terms of the major understanding here is that it is the family of God and it is not the religious establishment. It is understanding who God is and relating personally, intimately, within the fellowship of believers. In this house defined, I do believe it's important that somehow among Christians that were rooted in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and it's part of the DNA of the household of faith. The people are known and connected, beloved and prayed for, and really part of that fellowship. C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, uh, gave a speech entitled The Inner Ring in 1944. And in it, he exposed the idea of the, the inside group the inner circle. He pointed to the dangers of our uh, desire to be a part of that, to be on the inside of power. And he said the inner ring often causes us to do things that we would never dream of doing if we really thought about it. Uh, We want to exclude people because we want people on the outside so that we feel like we're on the inside. Well, this circle around Jesus inside the house could not be more different than the inner ring of power. In that circle, there is hospitality and openness and a great inclusiveness. 
For anyone who wants to come from being the admirer or being the challenger or being the condemner to sit at the feet of Jesus and really take in that gospel message that's life transformative. It's great to be a part of Jesus's inner circle. And it has nothing to do with pride, nothing to do with ego. It has everything to do with submission and surrender and accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. In the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.